welcome to En Route. This is the podcast where we talk about religion and where it intersects with modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. This is episode 75. This is a solo episode, just me talking. A few things that I wanted to talk about um, on this episode. One is the Olympics, since that's happening right now. And um, also, of course, this being a religious podcast, talking about religion. Um, So uh, I wanted to start um, with actually a few other things before I kind of go into that is um, I'm trying to do some videos of kind of recording videos, but uh, of interviews and who knows, I might actually try to do explainer videos sometimes. We'll see. Um, But I have put one in the show notes. I hope that you will give it a look. It's an interview I did um, a few weeks ago on um, the upcoming midterms. And so I hope that you will give it a look and um, give it a watch and also share it if possible. So um, I wanted to talk about the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, because I think um, a lot of people have been talking about the fact of um, the games are being held in China this year um, in Beijing. And like a lot of people, I actually don't think that Beijing should have received the games. Um but unlike a lot of people, I understand how they got it. Um, and I guess I need to say this at first, that I am not um, shilling for the uh, International Olympic Committee. They have a multitude of problems. Um, they already have a current problem with um, the, uh, and I, I don't, forgot her name, but the Russian Olympic uh, skater who's 15 and been forced to take kind of doping drugs for um, skating. And, you know, it's not her fault. She is basically, like I said, she's 15. She's kind of being pushed along by adults. I think that's, that's something that needs to stand out. But it seems like it's very unfair to allow her to continue to skate. Um, and that, you know, if she wins, we'll just not have a ceremony. Um, that's a little weak. So, you know, the International Olympic Committee, like a lot of sports, international sports federations, is incredibly corrupt and imperfect. And I don't know why that always is, but you just kind of have to do it, deal with that. So I'm also not I should say also not a hater of the Olympics. I there's it's kind of cool these days to be against the Olympics and talk about how much of a waste of money it is. Um, but I'm someone that has loved it. I, I guess I'm um, I don't know. I, I'm a sucker for them. I love both winter and summer. Um, I love the the pomp and circumstance. I love the the sentiments, the sentimentality of seeing the nations come together to compete, um, to see athletes from all walks of life who've trained for years and coming from all different parts of the world, and this is their moment to shine. Um, but these and the Winter Olympics usually is not as political as the Summer Games. Summer Games has almost always had some 
kind of drama as um, as as opposed to the Winter Games, which tend to be smaller and tend to not be as uh, well known. But of course, this year they are because, as I said, China is the host. Uh, Beijing is the city where they're being held. Now, the reason, of course, that a lot of people don't want to, um, are not pleased of seeing China uh, having the games is because of human rights violations, especially with the Uyghurs. Um, and human rights violation is probably a more antiseptic word than saying genocide, which is, that's actually what's happening. But I think also on top of that, what's um, happening, uh, how they've treated Hong Kong, um, how they're kind of already setting their eyes on Taiwan. This is a nation that should not have the games. So I agree with a lot of people about that. Where I disagree is there's a reason they got the games, and it is not simply because the International Olympic Committee got a whole bunch of money. Um, I think a lot of people don't really understand how games are chosen. Um, it is not a perfect process. Um, but you have to understand how things work in order to understand how China got the games. So you have to go back to 2015. Usually, until very, very recently, games, Olympic Games were always chosen about seven years before the actual event. So 2022 minus seven, it's 2015. So as the run-up is coming for to place bids in for the 2022 games, there are six bids that were taken. Um, and the, there were three that were coming from um, what we would call liberal democratic societies. So there were three cities, Krakow, Poland, Stockholm, Sweden, and Oslo, Norway. Now, I think all three would be great locations for our winter games. You know, Oslo has had experience. They hosted the 1952 games. Norway has had experience because, of course, and then uh, in 1994, Lillehammer, Norway hosted. Uh, Sweden has hosted actually summer games, but um, they have, they would also be, I think, a great location. So those were the three Democrat, democratic uh, countries that put forth bids. And then all of a sudden, one by one, those three bids were pulled. Um, some of the opposition for that, some of the reasoning because a lot of this was for, for local opposition. There was a lot of people um, in those countries that just didn't want it. And part of it is reasonable because of the price tag of the 2014 Winter Olympics. Those Olympics were held in Sochi, Russia. Um, and the price tag for that was $51 billion. So that was a lot of, that was a steep price for many cities. Uh, there was a lot of um, opposition in each of those cities, and so all of them pulled their bids. That basically left two cities that still had bids. Almaty, Kazakhstan, 
and Beijing, China. Kazakhstan is a former Soviet republic, so, and it is not a bastion of democracy. They have had, until very, very recently, a ruler, someone who ruled for nearly 30 years as their president. Um, he has picked a hand-picked successor. So, and then, of course, the other, other uh, candidate was Beijing. So, the IOC was left with these two exemplars. Almaty, Kazakhstan, Beijing, China. Now, the fact that both of these cities were picked or, or were left, maybe you could say that the IOC could have just said, no, we won't pick either. Or maybe in some people's view, view they should have just said, we we'll, won't have the Winter Olympics, which is not a realistic idea. So, after, you know, the, they had their votes and Beijing was chosen. Now, of course, everyone knew by that point that China had problems. It wasn't like this was, China was some great place of sunshine and lollipops back then. The problem is there was nothing else to pick. There were no other alternatives. So, this is what you get. And I think part of the problem here is there is, especially in the last few years, a rise of an anti-Olympic movement. And there's a lot of cynicism now about the Olympics. And, and some of it probably is justified. You know, a lot of people think that the games are a waste of money. The, you know, lots of cities are left with huge stadiums and other facilities that sit unused. That has been actually the case in a lot of, of, of cities such as Athens or, or Rio. And it's, I think it's going to be a challenge over the coming, coming years, especially in democratic societies, because, of course, people have the right to protest and they can protest against hosting the Olympics. Um, one example is Boston was initially chosen by the U.S. Olympic Committee to bid for the 2028 Games. But there was such strong opposition in Boston that basically Boston had to pull out. And um, Los Angeles basically that hadn't, I think, put in a bid or maybe had a bid and was rejected basically stepped in because, of course, they had facilities. Um, and there were facilities that were already being built, so they were able to to get in and, and host it. So I get it. Olympics is getting really expensive. Um, and of course there are a lot of people who think it's a waste of time. Why should we do it? But the thing is, even though in democracies, there are people who are too cool to think that the Olympics really matter. There is one audience that actually do, does think that the Olympics matter. Authoritarian regimes. So you have regimes like China or Russia, or Kazakhstan. Those are the countries that don't have a problem spending a lot of money because they're dictatorships, and that money can buy them great PR. And let's be honest, did we really expect that the IOC was going to have a backbone and say no? Of course not. And of course they were going to say yes. And the problem is there was no one to tell them no. And that's really our fault. 
going, I want to go back to 1993. So 93 was another year they were picking for the coming Olympics. In this case, 1993, they were picking for uh, who was going to host the 2000 Summer Games. Now, Beijing, again, wanted to host those games. This was big. China was kind of kind of coming out as an emerging uh, power, as an emerging economy. This was their chance, they thought. The problem was, this has only happened four short years after the massacre of students at Tiananmen Square. So what happened, in a lot of cases, you had people from the U.S. government, in one case, a civic society, they all went to work to persuade the IOC to choose another city. Um, as I said, here in the United States, we had people from our government who came and worked on this. Uh, that included the late Representative Tom Lantos, who was from California, and New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley. They worked hard to get other nations to basically vote against Beijing. And the thing is that that hard work paid off because the end result was, if you remember history, the IOC didn't choose Beijing in 2000. Instead, they chose Sydney, Australia. And I think that that's how it's supposed to work. The way that you deal with things like this is really to work through these institutions, even as imperfect as they are, to get the results that we want. Maybe back then people had more trust in institutions. Maybe they thought that institutions could still do good things. And that's why you had civic society, NGOs, and, and governments that were willing to work through the IOC, even though back in 1993 the IOC was not any, any better than it is today. The thing is now, because none, no one was willing to work back in 2014, 2015 to try to stop Beijing from getting the Winter Games, they got it. And then we're left with either these gestures that could be incredibly hard, not necessarily on the governments, but on the athletes, or things that are really small gestures, like a diplomatic boycott, which is what we ended up doing. And that's probably better than nothing, but it, it seems like we... And there are people who, I think, are quick to go and say, well, we, we should have just boycotted the games. Again, because most of these people don't give a damn about the games anyway, so why do they care if some athlete doesn't get to go um, to take part in the games? But, you know, as I said before, athletes spend a lot of time trying to prepare for those games. They try to, um, to work really hard and it just feels like they end up being the unwitting palm upon of a government and between governments. And that's to me is not fair. The thing is, is that this won't be the last time that authoritarian regimes will put bids in for games. I want to believe 
that um, liberal democracies will get a clue and work to prevent China or Russia or any others from getting the Olympics. I want to believe that there are people in governments around the world, um, NGOs, that are willing to actually persuade the IOC to stand up for freedom over tyranny. Now, I know that the IOC is hopelessly corrupt. Everyone knows this. It has been that way for decades. But the thing is, is back in 1993, it seems like at that point, the world was willing to come together and they believed that they could actually change things through the IOC, and they did. So what's changed in those last 30 years? What's changed between 1993 and now? Part of it is, I think, China itself. It, it's harder to criticize China. Um, back in 1993, China was still a developing country. Um, I actually visited China in 1999, and... Um, where they were back even then is they're far ahead of, of where they were back in 1999. Um, now China has more power. You know, back in the 1990s, it was not uncommon to see Hollywood films that were very critical of China. That's not the case now. Um, NGOs were willing to call China into account back in the 1990s. But, you know, today we actually find environmental groups that are actually telling governments that they need to be less critical of China because, of course, you know, they're an important part or partner in the fight against climate change. And as I said earlier, the other problem is that there's just less trust in Western of institutions in the West. You know, I think people like Lantos and... and um, Bradley believed, and, and people who worked in um, nonprofits really believed that institutions could still do good, even those that were incredibly imperfect, even those that were sometimes corrupt. And so they were willing to put some skin in the game. They wanted to try to reform things. They wanted to try to stand up for the good. And the problem is today, we are much more pessimistic, especially regarding institutions, regarding government. And that means that in some ways, our pessimism has rendered us powerless. So we can't change anything. All we can do is basically bitch about things. As I said earlier, sports bodies like the IOC or the NCA. Um, or FIFA, um, the soccer body, all have their problems with corruption. But it seems to me that if we want change to happen, if we don't want a Beijing to be hosting the games, then we have to do something about it. We can't just expect the IOC is just going to do the right thing. If we don't like that the IOC or FIFA are, are going to get uh, giving nations with horrible human rights records, um, those games or things like the Olympics or the World Cup, then it seems like our society, in our society, people need to do what was done 30 years ago, work through the ILC to block such moves. 
Even recently, it was the U.S. Attorney General that led a move that to for to take FIFA to task for its many crimes, including money laundry. The thing is, is that we want to blame the IOC for the Winter Games, and I'm not going to say that they're innocent. They aren't. But a lot of the blame, a lot of the reason that we're seeing this happen is because civic society and governments were too cynical and too apathetic. It is easy for us to blame the IOC. It is easy for us to sit and cry shame from our laptops regarding China's human rights record. But I think that it's another thing to get it off your ass and do something about it. But that, I think, is the temptation with cynicism. It allows you to offer criticism with no cost. I think that the Olympics matter. There are people who are always going to think it's a waste of time. But I think that they matter not just for the athletes, but they are a tool for soft power. It's a way for host nations to show themselves off to the world. It's an important way. It's an important story of humanity trying to come together, trying to win in spite of of differences, in spite of challenges. I think that if we care about democracy, we have to stop. We have to spend the time to stop things that like what's happened now. The reason Beijing has the games isn't really just because of the IOC. It's because democracies and their populations just didn't really give a damn. We need to take the Olympics seriously. Because the fact of the matter is the Chinas and the Russias of the world do take the games seriously. And they see the games for what they are, an opportunity to promote themselves on the world stage. And when we become cynical, when we become dismissive of the games, we basically allow oppressive societies to run roughshod over the process. And the end result is that they are rewarded for going against international law. So I will say this again, Beijing should not be hosting the Winter Olympics. It should have been somewhere else. The reason that it is in Beijing is because democracies and their populations failed to stand up. We need to do better next time. So, I will also want to talk a little bit, um, kind of things that are church related. And, um, I guess I want to talk about just the challenge sometimes it is to be a pastor of a congregation, especially a small congregation. Um, one that I wonder, will it continue? You know, there's been a lot of talk lately about a lot of pastors leaving the ministry. And the thing is that I can understand that. Um, The ministry is, I think, you know, this year will be 20 years um, since my ordination. 
And there's been a lot of it that I enjoy. But especially the last few years, and especially in the midst of the pandemic, it's also been a challenge. It's also been a challenge to feel like you've done everything and um, people are still upset at you. Um, It's frustrating to want to try to draw people deeper into a relationship with God and sometimes it feels like they don't get it. And the people that I serve are good people, so I don't want it to sound like they're all bad, horrible people. But I think it's just the things that everyone deals with when they are observing, especially now. I don't really have any words of eloquence to tell you. All that I can say is um, that I think that we have to kind of, at least for me, put trust in God. I'm trying a, we have a pastor pastor that attends, um, Presbyterian pastor that attends the congregation, and um, he has challenged the congregation to do a, a journal that basically talks about where we see God. And I can admit that sometimes that is hard to do, because sometimes it feels like I can see where God is not, not where God is. Um, But I am trying that. And some days I probably will write when I don't feel that I've seen God. Because maybe that absence is just as important as talking about the affirmation of when we do see God. And I'm doing this maybe to remind myself why I'm doing this. And also that it's not about me and that God is truly in control and is working through this. I think the temptation for any pastor is to feel that it, it the burden is on them. And of course, I'm not saying that we should be quietus and you know expect that we are going to um, have to do this all on our own. That said... It's still frustrating. And you wonder if people understand, they get it. Um, But I hope that this exercise helps me, allows me to keep me centered and to see what matters. Um, It has, like I said, and today especially has not been a very good day um, without going into much of what's going, what's happening. But I guess that it is important for us as pastors to know why we do this and who we're doing this for and also in whose power we do this. Because Lord knows if it was just my power... I'd probably be out there selling insurance right now. So I want to actually share one final thing. Um, 
and this is based off of something that I wrote um, last month. It's an article, um, but I think it's important, especially right now, as it seems like we might actually be at the precipice of point of seeing war taking place in Europe. Um, it's important. So uh, what I wanted to just kind of talk about is that Back in uh, 1983 was kind of an important year in my life. It was quite an important year of a lot of people. That was the last, that was the year that the last of the original Star Wars trilogy, The Return of the Jedi, came out. Um, Michael Jackson's thriller was kind of burning up the charts. And um, 1983 was the year that I entered high school. Um, I had become a teenager in the fall of 82, but it seems like you really hit adolescence when you got into high school. The other thing that could have ha that happened in the uh, in nineteen eighty three is that the world could have ended. So nineteen eighty three, for those who are too young to remember or weren't born yet, and as I get older, there are lots and lots more people who were not born in nineteen eighty three, but. Relations between the United States and the Soviet Union were probably at their lowest level since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, there were just a number of events that had basically put the uh, two superpowers down a dangerous path. One of them was that Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev died in the fall of 82. He was replaced by Yuri Andropov. Um, in September of 1983, the Soviets shut down Korean airliner uh, double, uh 007, um, as it strayed into Soviet airspace, um, and the plane was shot down, killed everyone on board. Um, within the Politburo, within the ruling uh, council, there were actually those who were who were just certain that America was playing a first strike on the Soviet Union. And throughout 1983, there were several flashpoints that could have basically started Armageddon. But none of them really brought us closer to the brink of war than um, something called Able Archer. Now, Able Archer was a, a joint exercise by NATO. It simulated a conflict with the then Warsaw Pact that um, culminated in the release of nuclear weapons. Of course, the release of nuclear weapons means as Matthew Broderick's character says in War Game, the movie War Games, which also came out in 1983, global thermonuclear war. So this exercise, there were a few components there that basically scared the bejesus off of the Soviets and thought that maybe this was a pretext for war. For one, there was uh, coded communication and radio silence. And supposedly, heads of government were supposed to take part in um, of April Archer, so people like President Reagan or uh, British Prime Minister Thatcher. But in reality, none of them did take part, and that's probably a good thing, because probably if they did, you and I would not be sitting here right now. But even without that, the Soviets were so spooked that they basically had their forces on alert um, the Soviet Fourth Air Army was loading nukes on their planes in anticipation of nuclear attack. And all the while, in the West, 
no one realized that we were stumbling towards what could have been an accidental start of a nuclear war. For whatever reason, the Soviets didn't press the button. Now, even if we in the West weren't aware of the Soviet paranoia, maybe it was because we were so fixated on the threat of nuclear war. If you're someone like me from, from Generation X, you basically grew up and went through high school worried that nuclear war was going to happen and um, that we wouldn't make it to adulthood. And Hollywood provided a lot of entertainment that reflected our atomic fears. Um, I just talked to you about war games, and that one was pretty intense. And then, of course, in November of 1983, there was a television movie the day after, and um, it really allowed Americans to see what a nuclear conflict with Russia was going to look like. And, of course, the, the long story short was it was not going to be good. I think I look back at 1983 and I was probably a nervous wreck, especially because of, of nuclear war. I mean, I was freaked out by the day after. And you know what? I actually didn't see the whole movie. All I had to see was a little bit of the movie. And, and that was even actually a clip. That was enough. That freaked me out. I was, I mean, I, it took me a f several days to fall asleep well and, the only thing that really calmed me down was by telling myself a noble lie. I said that I thought that God wouldn't put Christians through such a horror. That was a lie, as I said, and probably not even a noble lie, but the thing is, it put my mind at ease, somewhat. I was able to get on with life, and I didn't have to worry about being vaporized by a nuke. But the fact is, it was still a lie. It was untrue. Because the fact of the matter is, Christians have died because of persecution or from war, or from worse. They weren't spared just because they were believers. In fact, they were more likely than others to face horrors. We're now in a kind of in another period where we're thinking about the future, and we don't think that the future is so bright. You know, I was going to say that this time we aren't as worried about a mushroom cloud, but I don't think that's true, especially as we see Russia at least looking like it's going to invade Ukraine. And on top of that, we worry about the mobs, as we saw last year that stormed the U.S. Capitol. If you skim through a number of news sites, they seem to be filled with opinion writers Really wondering how long American democracy is going to last. There are headlines like, how does this end? Where the, American, the crisis and American democracy might be headed. This is what Vox says. NPR says, six in ten Americans say U.S. democracy is in crisis as the big lie takes root. And the Atlantic says, Trump, Trump's next coup has already begun. There is a lot of worry about the 2024 presidential election. There's a lot of people that are worried that something could happen that could set a constitutional crisis in motion 
And that could lead to either the weakening or the outright collapse of the, our democratic experience, experiment. It's easy to think about this and, and wonder if people are engaging in crisis porn. And I want to believe that things are not as dark as we think. But we can see how badly damaged and frayed our body politic is. And it's hard to ignore that we could actually become hungry on steroids, a nation that slowly but surely loses its democratic nature. There just seems to be a palpable fear that we're headed for some very choppy seas ahead in the years to come. Now, of course, some of us try to rationalize that things um, are probably not that bad, but it's hard to deny the fact that things aren't okay. Over the Trump years and, and that, I, I had to I actually wanted to talk to my husband. He, was, he is American, but he was born in Canada, and um, I kept telling him, I have told him more than once that to apply for Canadian citizenship because you never know what could happen. The thing is, is that I could try to rationalize here again. I could tell myself a little lie that things will be okay, that there won't be any type of destruction of democracy and I'll be fine. But the thing is, it could we could enter a period of sustained political violence. We, I don't know. <laughs> the thing is, is that bad things could be headed our way. I mean, really bad things. And the thing is, we probably won't escape it. And that actually leads me to this unsettling thing, is that being a Christian, following God, does not exempt you from tragedy. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks to his disciples about two events. One is an act of state-sanctioned violence, and the other is a random accident. And Jesus asks, were these bad people that received their just fate? And Jesus tells them, no. Life happens. And it's not because necessarily people did anything. You know, in our modern times, a tornado may strike a city, or a plane crashes minutes after taking off, a mine collapses, the thing is, is that life can end in a moment, and we don't know when that could happen. But Jesus stresses that we need to live our lives with a sense of urgency, turning from the ways that hurt others and God, and turning towards things that heal. Of course, there is another character in the Bible that is devil deals with suffering, and that is Job, who loses everything including his children. And the thing is, is that he did nothing wrong to deserve this. Being a God-fearing man did not protect him from tragedy. The thing is, is that even though he was angry at God, he never lost faith in God, even during this time of sheer desperation. The thing is, the odds are pretty good that sometime in our life, 
we might face some type of calamity. Our grandparents and great-grandparents faced war and persecution and racism and other horrors. They weren't protected from, from the evils of this world. Their faith did not protect them. In fact, sometimes our faith makes such horrors even more possible. For reasons we don't understand, God isn't able to protect us from disaster. But the thing is, is that God does promise to be with us. God doesn't just step back. God doesn't just say we're on our own. God is Emmanuel. God is with us. Last September, on the 20th anniversary of September 11th, um, the writer Tim Alberta, he wrote an incredibly moving story in Atlantic about his cousin, Glenn. Um, Back in 2001, Glenn was actually the general manager of Windows on the World. And Windows on the World was the restaurant that was atop one of the towers on the World Trade Center. Um, He actually, I guess, was able to bring it back from kind of financial ruin um, to becoming one of the most premier places. Um, On September 11th of 2001, he was actually running late to work. Um, So the time that he normally would have, if he normally would have been there, was a time he could have, when he was normally there, was a time when the two planes hit the towers. And um, Glenn again, was running late. He was able to come uh, to lower Manhattan. He watched as his workers broke windows to wave tablecloths. He basically knew that they were going to die. And the rest of the article is about Glenn trying to pick up the pieces of his life. He had, he was mourning uh, the employees, the friends that he lost on that day. Um, He wasn't protected from the tragedy. He lived but he had to live with that sense of survivor's guilt. And over the last 20 years, he has tried to live his life again, but it has not always been easy. And the thing is, is that we don't rise above tragedy. We, we can't ride above its effect. It didn't protect the people in the towers. It didn't protect the people on the plains, they all faced tragedy. They all faced horrors. And it did not protect Glenn from losing his employees. Looking back to how I was feeling back in the early 80s, I think it was wrong for me to think that I could be protected from nuclear war. The fact is, none of us can be protected from civil war or political strife. God isn't going to protect us. But that doesn't mean that God has left us. What it does mean is that God is here. God is with me. God is with you. And that may not seem like much. It may not seem comforting. But I think that in the end... It's everything. Well, that is it for this solo episode. Um, I hope that this was helpful. Um, And 
sorry if I was a little too confessional. Um, hopefully that people aren't who um, won't take it the wrong way. Um, just a few housekeeping notes. Make sure that you follow us on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Um, the links are in the show notes. Uh, check us out at enroutepodcast.org. Um, and there will be, uh, usually I try to play some additional material about each podcast episode. Um, I really would like to hear from you all. And so if you have a question or a comment, send me an email at reverendpodcast at gmail.com. And like I said, I want to hear from you. Um, questions, comments, answers. Um, and then finally, leave. Uh, I hope that you can leave a rating or a review on your podcast app. Um, like everything that's online, podcasts run on algorithms. And so the more positive reviews and ratings... Um, that makes it easier for people to find a podcast. And, you know, it also would be great that if you listen to this podcast, share it with someone else. Um, this is a podcast that's trying to do a critical, but um, I think supportive view of mainline Protestantism. And that's not something that you see much of um, in the podcast. Oh, fear, if that's a word. Um, so, please consider leaving that rating or review and, and sharing this podcast with someone you know. Um, there will be some interesting episodes coming up, and um, I won't tell you what they are. So just to keep you uh, kind of wondering. And um, we will talk again soon. So that is it for this episode of En Route, uh, Journey of faith and modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care, Godspeed, and see you soon.